Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome, history friends, to the second episode on the Long War. My name is Zach, and if you didn't know, this is When Diplomacy Fails. I'm sure you probably knew that because it's written on the graphic wherever you get this from. Whether you download this from iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Podcast Addict, which is my personal favourite, or anywhere else, you're listening to When Diplomacy Fails and we're very happy to have you on. You guys should know that When Diplomacy Fails relies on its fans to get the word out there. So if you'd like to support us, the best way by far is to tell somebody about us. Tell a history friend, tell anyone who even might be remotely interested in history. That, Zach talks to himself every week and sometimes more often than once a week about the subject of history. Tell them Louis XIV is a fascinating guy and that they should track this podcast down. I'd really appreciate it, but if you're not going to do that, if you're the unsociable type, maybe you're just not in the mood to talk to that guy today, I understand that. What you can do instead is leave a review. Maybe like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, share something that we do, and take advantage of social media by spreading the word without actually having to talk to anyone. What a novel concept. Isn't social media lovely? Isn't it great? It is great, and it's great that you are listening right now. This podcast is brought to you by BeFit. I just made that up. It's not really brought to you by that. But I would hope that you all be fit. If you don't know what the acronym is, you know what to do. Go to wdfpodcast.com and follow all the links from there. You guys are awesome, and I hope you enjoy the latest episode. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the second part of our special examination of the Long War. Last time we introduced you guys to a few important concepts. We denoted how Louis viewed the peacetime as an opportunity to expand rather than to sit back and simply enjoy what he'd already gained. And we learned that he planned to expand, not necessarily through outright warfare, but through a series of tactical invasions and seizures designed to serve as a series of fait accomplis to the European powers. By acting quickly against isolated targets, Louis likely believed that as far as he pushed his neighbours, nobody would ever escalate the question into war. With this in mind, he sought to add some legitimacy to his moves, by creating chambers of reunion in three key areas. Alsace, Lorraine and Franche-Comté. All of these regions were important centres of potential expansion, yet all retained certain independent institutions, populations or towns that had to be overcome before the French takeover could be complete. By adding this administrative edge to his moves, Louis could claim that he was merely reuniting territory that had a legitimate connection to France, but few of his rivals could have been fooled. This, as the historian John A. Lynn plainly noted, was war in fact, even if it was not war in name. This time, we'll see this policy escalate further, as Louis sets his sights on ever larger targets. How would his neighbours react? Predictably, it would transpire not all that well. I will now take you to one of the most troubled portions of Louis' so-called domains, the Duchy of Lorraine, 
where history was unfolding in a sphere so long under the influence of the kings of France. It is necessary to understand the Lorrainers better. A lieutenant voices an unpopular opinion in a letter to Louvois, 1673. This episode will aim to explain the reunions through the case study, so to speak, of the Duchy of Lorraine. The usage of Lorraine to make everything Louis planned to do easier to appreciate and understand makes sense, because in terms of what Louis was attempting to do with the reunions, no better example of the historical and military context of his moves exists than the story of the unfortunate Duchy of Lorraine. We've long danced around the issue of the curious Duchy of Lorraine. We've often alluded to the fact that Louis didn't necessarily own it during this era, that he invaded it without a declaration of war in 1670, and that its dukes waged a bitter war against him for the next three decades. Not until the Peace of Ryswick and the end of the War of the League of Augsburg in 1697 was the territory returned to its rightful duke. By that point, ill feeling between France and the duchy had reached new heights, and French kings would be tormented by the strategic implications of this rump state, siding with its enemies and providing an open door into their realm. Not until 1766, when the duchy was just straight up annexed into the French realm proper, did the question seem solved. In short, then, when Bismarck enforced the handover of Alsace-Lorraine to Germany upon the conclusion of the Franco-Prussian War in 1871, Lorraine had only been an integral part of France for barely 100 years. Hard as it may be to believe, then, the German historians could justifiably claim that the years before 1766 gave no indication of Lorraine's loyalty or inherent Frenchness. On the contrary, an argument could be made for the region hardly being French at all. This is because Lorraine was above all an imperial fief, a duchy that swore fealty to the Holy Roman Emperor, and which had regularly been used, as per the Habsburg cooperation, as a Spanish stepping stone along its vaunted Spanish road. When this Spanish road was cut during the Thirty Years' War, Lorraine seemed somewhat adrift, unable to stake much of a claim upon its Habsburg past, thanks mostly to the fact that it was now awkwardly positioned in such a strategically vital place to French kings, so it was only a matter of time before they came knocking. This they did in 1633, when French troops under Louis XIII invaded Lorraine for the sake of French safety. This act, coming on the eve of the Franco-Spanish War that would wage until 1659, proved an important background feature of Lorraine's historical experience. It was not until peace returned to Europe in 1659 that a dying Cardinal Mazarin relinquished the duchy to its duke two years later. 
Then, as we know, Louis followed the common trend by occupying the duchy on the eve of another war, this time the war with the Dutch, and this time in 1670. Again, Lorraine's strategic importance for France was simply too great to leave it as a wild card in what was to come. For the sake of tying up loose ends, Lorraine's independent status had to go. One of the reasons why this era in particular can often seem more confusing than it has any right to be isn't merely because of the sheer volume of disunited states and statelets running around. When we try to explain why a certain leader behaved in the way that he did, we have to remember that certain concepts were also in their infancy. For example, one may ask the very reasonable question of why Louis didn't simply march into these various territories and seize their bastions of defence, thereby enforcing loyalty from the local nobility and providing the fait accompli to Europe which was required. The answer to why Louis felt the need to create three chambers of reunion, pay the bureaucrats to think in a certain way and then allude to these same bureaucrats when he conducted his foreign policy, can be found similarly in Louis' actions 15 years before. When invading Spain during the War of Devolution, Louis didn't simply march in and take what he wanted. Instead he devised a pretext however flimsy that pretext was, in order to justify what he was about to do. When we examined that event at the beginning of the series of the Franco-Dutch War, if you can remember back that far, it feels like yonks ago, I reasoned that even though everyone and their mother knew the real reason why Louis invaded, for the sake of appearances it was important, in any case, to have some kind of pretext. Again, that principle applies here. The 17th century, as we know from previous episodes and the extra episodes, if you've had a chance to listen to them, wink wink, nudge nudge, was an era of change. Many concepts like state borders and the actual concept of centralised kingship were even in development, but so was another concept, that of military occupation. Military occupation was certainly an accepted part of warfare, of course it was, as per the loosely defined rules of conflict, it was expected that one's territories would be occupied as a byproduct of said warfare. We know this after seeing the tendency of French troops to occupy certain regions for the sake of levying contributions. This was seen as a perfectly legitimate act of war and it was very important for the financial stability of the French war effort, but what happened when such military occupation was separate from the conduct of hostilities? Could it still be considered legitimate? This is especially true for the early modern period when military occupation was a relatively new concept and its definition still imprecise. Well, the right of conquest was an accepted part of international relations in the 17th century, many would regard the right of conquest as an inferior type of claim, so any formerly independent territory since occupied by sheer brute force retained an air of inequality with those lands that had been legally incorporated, even if the legality of such incorporation was shaky at best. Whether window dressing or not then, Europeans did not seem to like the idea of one power marching across the map and seizing everything. No ruler, however powerful, could hope to behave in such a way and thereafter expect to be taken as the lawful ruler of the realm. After all, within his own realm, a ruler was not respected or taken to be the legitimate sovereign purely because of the force at his disposal. He was sovereign because either through blood or law he had come to such a point. Furthermore, the king drew his power not from his armies, but from his nobility. And this fact of life in the 17th century, as much as before, 
impacted the way international relations worked. Because just as surely as an illegitimate king couldn't bully his way into a position of domestic power, a king could not claim to rule over his feudal lords by right of his larger army. Incidentally, it was often the case that the king had to keep a wary eye on nobles that were richer and could command more immediate military support than he, and thus the king relied upon the legitimacy of his claim and the support of that aristocracy. This legacy of dependence and legitimacy was especially true in France, where for many centuries independent or at least semi-autonomous nobles ruled their own enclaves and swore fealty as noble vassals to the French crown. Such status had been tidied up, and the crown now held more genuine power over the regions outside the direct centralised control of Paris, but the continuation of these principles were inescapable in France. By our timeline, they fundamentally shaped the way in which French kings looked at their opportunities and power base across the continent. So, it didn't matter so much that Louis' claims on Lorraine, Alsace or Franche Comte were sourced above all from a series of well-paid officials out to do the king's bidding. What mattered was that these individuals could forge a claim for Louis that existed outside of the military arm of the state. Such a claim was inherently more valuable because if one wished to contest his claim, they would have to produce their own counterweight and what was more, they would have to persuade enough potential allies to back them up. Of course, in the case of Lorraine, it was fairly easy to see that Louis' efforts were little more than a naked power grab. Yet we should bear in mind that even the Sun King felt the need to refer to the legal traditions of the day. Perhaps the great difference between Louis and his contemporaries was that Louis was simultaneously content to use both arms of the state, so the legal and the military if it proved necessary. Thus, he would produce the strongest legal claim he could, but he would also arm his men on the ground with the ability to take what they were entitled to after a short display of legal niceties. How long this display had to be, and precisely how convincing it had to be at the same time, depended much on the region in question and whether anyone truly could be said to care for it. So even after I'd just said all that, what Louis banked on above all was that no power would cry foul and challenge him legally or militarily, in the courtroom or the battlefield, for the sake of territories so close in proximity to France anyway. Thus, such moves were plainly a risk, yet Louis, irresistibly brazen as he was, acted as though the deal was done, and nobody would dare to stop him. There was also the native populations to consider when trying to use military force or a policy of straight-up annexation somewhere without any real legal justification. When the French made inroads into Italy or along the Pyrenees, for example, or even within Franche Comte itself, the inhabitants on the ground were far more likely to see the occupation as permanent if it came supported by a law or, better still, an international codified treaty. Similarly, it was hard for regions placed under contributions to simply accept their new overlords on account of the fact that they had the superior force. European relations, contrary to what many surveys on the history of the continent might tell you, were not always about one's ability to exert force on the population in order to acquire legitimacy. It was legitimate because the people on the ground recognised it as such, not because the king or the emperor etc. deemed it so. A legitimate ruler does not fear rebellion or gasp outside interference in his domains because his subjects know their place. Using contributions as an argument doesn't quite cut it either because occupation during wartime and occupation after 
or viewed very differently. Hugo Grotius, the famous Dutch jurist responsible for codifying much of the accepted terminology of international law for the early modern period, upheld that the conqueror did have a right to reap his just rewards from conquered territory, and he did concede far-reaching rights and powers to the conqueror over the lives and freedoms of the people. But only for so long as hostilities lasted. Once the hostilities were over, Louis could no more retain an occupying force in Lorraine than he could lay claim to all of the Palatine, unless of course he had some legal right to be there. Again, continuing with this case study of Lorraine to explain concepts like unclear borders and vague notions of sovereignty which were laid down in the Treaties of Westphalia, and which Louis fully planned on taking advantage of, we need to look at the Franco-Lorraine relationship in the 1660s, where Lorraine enjoyed a flutter of independence under its Duke Charles IV, who was, of course, a determined opponent of France. The reason why such confusion reigned over the sovereignty of Lorraine was twofold. First, as per the Peace of Munster between France and the Holy Roman Empire in 1648, France had been given authority over three bishoprics within Lorraine. These bishoprics looked more like microstates on the map of Europe, and you've likely heard of them. Metz, Toul, and Verdun. This was all well and good, and though it looked strange on the map of Europe to see France hold bits of territory within Lorraine, this wasn't abnormal for the era. However, when we come to the second problem, the penny drops, because if we remember what we looked at last time were the nature of defining things like borders, hinterlands, or territories, or dependencies becomes somewhat difficult, and certainly open to interpretation, then Duke Charles IV would surely have shuddered when he noted that the 1648 treaty entitled France not merely to the three bishoprics of Metz, Toul, and Verdun, but also to their hinterlands. What these hinterlands precisely referred to depended, literally, on the mood of those that lived within the bishoprics and of the inhabitants of Lorraine proper, who perhaps sensed which way this dangerous wind was blowing. All Louis really had to do was claim that the hinterlands extended this way or that, and you could be sure he could find individuals on the ground to back him up. Thus, the Chamber of Reunion for Metz was born, and if you happened to be an inhabitant of Lorraine in 1680, you would surely have known what to expect. In the 1660s, certainly, Lorraine hadn't helped its case as an independent duchy. Fearful of French invasion after so many decades of occupation beforehand, Charles IV made a series of agreements with England and the Dutch, aimed at literally rankling Louis into making either concessions or a mistake, which would cast him as the villain. At this point, it has to be said that Louis tried to tread carefully with Lorraine, but this is likely only because the region was a sensitive one. If we think back to what we said earlier about legal claims ensuring a greater sense of international respect, Louis worried about the consequences if he straight up invaded Lorraine and annexed it into his realm. This would greatly disturb the German princes, especially as Louis could find no justifiable reason for his invasion. With the war with the Dutch in mind, Louis' German neighbours would have to be kept sweet, and so he tried a different approach. He would frame the invasion of Lorraine in 1670 not as an annexation, but as an effort by France to institute a regime change. The troublesome and dangerous Duke Charles IV of Lorraine, Louis tried to make clear to his wider neighbours, had to go for the sake of French security. In the meantime, of course, 
The French hold on the three bishoprics within Lorraine only increased, with the royal intendant posted on the ground, signalling the French intention to hold on to the lands indefinitely. Louis would later explain in his memoirs that he had simply grown exhausted by the perfidy of Charles IV. And when the Duke tried to raise taxes on all imports going to the three French-owned bishoprics within Lorraine, Louis viewed this as the last straw. He couldn't afford to have this unruly duke standing at the crossroads of the French and imperial borders. So empty of defensible settlements was Lorraine that one royal observer compared the campaign undertaken against Lorraine in September 1672 a military promenade taken on an idyllic day. Charles IV fled to Cologne. The so-called regime change was blithely ignored by Louis, since by this point it didn't really seem to matter. The planned successor to that terrible duke was supposed to be his nephew, also called Charles, because why not? Yet nephew Charles V would have to wait in line, and would in fact spend more time leading allied armies against Louis, than actually ruling his duchy. In attempting to explain exactly what French troops were still doing in Lorraine in October 1670, Louis tried to paint the picture of he, the noble king, deposing Charles IV, that sordid duke. The French envoy to the imperial diet made plain Louis's reasoning, saying, The bad conduct of the Duke of Lorraine towards his disloyalty, his contraventions of the treaties we have together, his negotiation with every court against my master's interests, had provoked the invasion. In the meantime, Louis planned to pacify the concerns of the Imperials by ensuring the good conduct of French troops, which the Lorrainers had to pay for as their occupiers, of course, and by emphasising the importance of the region to French security. French propaganda was very active at this point because it was trying to find a legal way out as well, as the terrible behaviour of the Duke was emphasised and massively exaggerated. Louis was also encouraged to dally and waste time by Louvois, who informed him that the Duke's succession was split between an illegitimate son and a son-in-law and the aforementioned nephew, and each of these men alone wouldn't be enough to raise sufficient taxes, troops, or moral support at home, so they'd be more likely to squabble amongst themselves. Thus, Louis was content to wait until the eve of the Duke's death, that is, Charles IV, and even give the appearance of evacuating his troops. He would hide the true nature of what he was actually doing, since he knew he had no legal basis for being there. The Emperor's attention, indeed, was mostly on the Lorraine question, even while he seemed content to make a vow of neutrality as the Dutch war approached. Louis' agents thus ventured into the depths of Lorraine, and they sought to acquire oaths of loyalty from the nobles in Lorraine's scattered towns. These oaths would be required to claim that the French occupation had an air of legitimacy, but they proved difficult to acquire as the Lorraine nobles were notably AWOL. Fully aware of the process that Louis was trying to implement, it was easier for the Lorrainers to simply avoid the French and publicise their strategy, rather than directly confront them. The bad press in the courts of Europe, it was believed, would force the French to eventually evacuate. It was inconceivable to these nobles that Louis would remain in place without any legal rights. After all, who would do a thing so barbaric and backward as occupying a region in peacetime where one had no right? Surely not the most Christian king of France. When it became clear what kind of ball game the Lorrainer nobles were playing, 
Louis amped up the legal lingo himself. Taking advantage of Lorraine's tricky status on the map of Europe, Louis instructed his envoys now to emphasise that since the Duke of Lorraine held portions of that territory as a vassal of France and thus swore fealty to him, as the Dukes of Normandy had once done, for example, that he, Louis, was simply exercising his right as overlord to depose his unruly vassal. That's right, portions of Lorraine could be claimed to, at least in some legal sense, technically belong to France. It was this argument indeed which Richelieu had used when invading the territory originally in 1633, and Louis' agents sought to use it again here. Since the forces invading Lorraine in 1670 had captured the Duke's archives, Louis put to work his archivists and historians in his efforts to scour the records of the Duke's lands and find further legal justification for his actions. Indeed, if 1670 was a precursor to the events of 1680, where similar actions would be taken by a chamber of reunion at Metz, then 1670 was also a repetition of what had already occurred in 1634. See if any of this language sounds familiar to you guys. In 1634, an edict was sent out proclaiming the reunion of Lorraine and the Duchy of Bar within Lorraine to France, based on three factors. First, the very considerable and ancient claims of Louis XIII. Second, the current possession by treaties and by force of arms. And third, the extraordinary felony of the Duke. In 1675, Duke Charles IV of Lorraine died, and it seemed like Louis would finally be able to force his case as he wanted it. Neither the illegitimate son nor the son-in-law had acquired much enthusiastic support from the Duke's former supporters, but his nephew, Charles V, had. Louis thus turned his venom towards this would-be heir and refused to recognise him, citing his own rights as sovereign lord over his vassal and how they superseded those of a mere ducal prince. Even when all the other European powers recognised the rights of Charles V as the rightful Duke of Lorraine, Louis refused, even dispensing protocol and treating him to the end as though he were merely Prince Charles. The French then tried additional tactics. They tried to create a regiment led by the Rainer nobles, but nobody turned up. They tried coercion and bribery by entering towns and interrogating a number of prominent families as to their inclinations. Large rewards were offered to those that would accept and acknowledge the French supremacy, but no bribe seemed big enough to produce the desired result. Philip McCluskey, in his article on the history of the French policy in Lorraine, which has really helped us out for this episode, by the way, noted that Louis even went as far as suspending the debts of the Lorrainer nobility for a decade if they would accept him as their overlord instead of Charles V, something which was rarely, if ever, resorted to, considering the knock-on effects it would have. To McCluskey, as much as ourselves we can see plainly how desperate Louis was to win over the nobles, because as long as Charles V was at large, they were his source of legitimacy. Rather than co-opt the Lorrainer nobility then, Louis just outlawed them and created his own, creating further problems as a displaced diaspora of Lorrainer noblemen filtered into the foreign courts telling of the cruel and repressive ways of the French. This newly minted class of mostly foreign French lawyers and officials entering into Lorraine society knew nothing of the complex demographic makeup of the regions, of the strategic or economic lay of the varied towns, or of the delicate balance that the citizens already enjoyed with their local judges, magistrates, or lords. 
by displacing the native human infrastructure, Louis created more problems than he solved because he upended how the Lorrainer apple cart was supposed to work and he forced the citizens in question to cope with the alien system or abandon their homes. Perhaps surprisingly, most Lorrainer citizens, if they could afford it, chose to do the latter and leave. Thus, towns on important military routes, for example, were suddenly emptied of important citizens with critical trades, rendering previously vital garrison towns into ghost towns. Louis' methods were blatantly not gaining him the legitimacy and recognition in Lorraine that he desired, even despite the extensive methods and promises to the Lorrainer nobles. This, of course, made the Peace of Nijmegen very uncomfortable for Duke Charles V of Lorraine and his allies. At first, the Duke determined not to accept Louis' humiliating demands. The permanent occupation of Nancy, the duchy's capital, and the French occupation of four key military roads. Eventually, the Holy Roman Emperor Leopold, who was Charles V's brother-in-law, don't you know, pressured the Duke into accepting and advancing the whole sorry Lorraine business into European law. Initially, Charles accepted, hoping to negotiate his way at least into having some kind of authority over his capital city. But the French remained obdurate on all of their points, so Charles said no thanks. Leopold said, are you serious? So Charles went and sulked in the Alps with his fellow Duke of Savoy. On the 20th of April 1679, the terms of the peace were officially renounced by Charles V's reps, and thus Lorraine's status remained in flux even while Europe was technically at peace. We are thus brought to November of 1679, where the more moderate Pompon was replaced as Foreign Minister of France by the blunt and hawkish Charles Colbert. What this whole episode has served to show was that, certainly in the case of Lorraine at least, the creation of a chamber of reunion at Metz was the continuation of French attempts to legitimise lands directly to its east, in too strategically important a position to be simply entrusted to a foreign duke, however loyal he seemed to be. The new foreign minister Charles Colbert had once been the royal intendant of the three bishoprics of Lorraine, and he thus understood their central importance to Louis and his quest for security. Resurrecting the old methods of combing the archives for legitimacy, the Chamber of Reunion at Metz set about investigating precisely how connected Lorraine had once been either to France or to other nearby portions of Europe. What they found greatly pleased Louis, because above all they offered him an out. After many decades of trying to persuade the Lorrainers how much better off they'd be under French rule as a basis for French legitimacy in the region, Louis jumped at the opportunity to base this legitimacy on another more solid foundation. Rather than increase the power of France in Lorraine, the Chamber of Reunion could and would rule that the three bishoprics of Metz, Toul and Verdun, which don't forget France did directly own, were entitled to more actual lands within Lorraine than they'd previously been accredited with. This very convenient revelation meant that Louis didn't necessarily need Lorraine's approval to move forward. He was able to act in the name of his own bishoprics in a land which was legally part of France. Thus, the tiny French enclaves within the wider duchy expanded their borders based on claims so tenuous that many of the bishops within them couldn't even testify to their accuracy. A tactical amount of financial application on said bishops, complete with the presence of French troops and the ready supply of Louis' own sources, taken of course from 
Charles IV's original and completely legitimate ducal archive all those decades ago, would enable Louis to make greater gains in technical and legalistic sovereignty in Lorraine than he ever had before. Louis could claim that he was merely reuniting lands once owned by the Lorrainers to his trusty bishoprics, and this policy, however dubious or nakedly born of self-interest, provided the legal foundations upon which Louis could build his new regime in Lorraine. Finally, the Sun King could argue, the occupation was not based upon brute force, but on the legitimate and legal claims of the once dispossessed bishops. Louis was not seizing anything, you see. He was merely taking what was rightfully his by the historic and legal traditions of the region. Yet, although Louis could tell himself that he now operated in a clear and unquestionable legal territory, not everyone was convinced. Above all, Duke Charles V, predictably enough, remained intransigent, as did his nobles, now mostly in exile. In addition, while Louis did not draw outright hostility through the reunions in Lorraine, he did encounter much suspicion, apprehension, and probably a lot of depressed sighs. If he pushed too far, it seemed, then his German neighbours and the Emperor himself would surely have to weigh in on the debate. Then came the news in July 1681 that the Chamber of Metz had ruled that they had once owned a smaller parcel of territory, nearby Luxembourg of all places, which happened to be owned by the Spanish. The seizure of this portion of land proved to be the wake-up call, when the French determined that portions of other dependencies around Luxembourg also had historically belonged to this duchy in the past, these were seized as well. Soon only the Spanish bastion of Luxembourg itself stood up against French demands. As far as Louis was concerned, Luxembourg was merely one more step along the road to absolute security along his frontier, and he was determined to seize that as well. The war in fact, though not in name, looked set to continue into 1682. And that history, friends, is the end of the episode. During this installment of the Long War, we've tried to give a different perspective, which hopefully made the whole reunions process easier to understand by taking the point of view of Lorraine. The Chamber of Reunions gave Louis the opportunity to claim Lorraine, but this new development was merely a part of the ongoing saga Louis attempted to write in the region, where the quest for legitimacy and recognition of one's sovereign rights was a critically sought concession. Even if Louis's manipulation of European history could be considered something of a coup, for the French writ did expand by hook or by crook into Lorraine, out of its three bishoprics from this point, the obsession remained intense, not merely to guard what had been gained, but to expand upon these gains at the price of war if necessary. Next time, we'll see how this policy of risk and reward escalated European tensions yet further than ever before. So thanks for listening, history friends. My name is Zach. You've been listening to the second episode of The Long War, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Okay, so when I said I'll see you soon, I literally meant right now. Hey guys, it's time to do the patrons for this week, as is customary. Just so you know, if you would like to support this podcast on Patreon, I would not at all be offended. In fact, I would be very pleased to welcome you into the greatest group of history friends and supporters this side of audio. Yes, I just made that up right now, but we are still pretty darn cool. And all patrons get access to some pretty sweet deals. So this week... 
the patrons are, and remember we're reading out their full names this time because they deserve it. The kind of philosophy I'm following is that if whatever name they use to sign up with, they're happy for me to read aloud. So in future, if you would like me to not tell people your full name, just give me a pseudonym or whatever it is you'd like to do. But hey, it's not my fault now. I've covered myself. So no suing me, please. Thank you very much. So first we have Luke Russell, Diplomat, Richard Riley, Attaché, Preston P, Embassy Intern, Jonas Brandes, Diplomat, and Tom Rowe, Diplomat. Thanks to you guys who joined up, and in the future, I'm unless you guys really object to this, I'm going to change it up so that instead of reading them out every week, I'm going to read them out once a month, because I think that would kind of, well, it'll be, be massively easier for me anyway, so if no one objects, if no one says don't do that, then it's what I'm going to do. It makes it far easier for me to plan episodes. And yeah, so thanks. Thanks very much for listening, history friends and patrons all, and I'll be seeing you all next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.